Hello and welcome to Timelock, the podcast in which guests choose the records they would place in a time capsule to represent their lives. On this episode, it's my pleasure to talk with Paul Hierophant. DJ Paul has been there, seen and done it all. DJing from 88, he's got more stories to tell than Hans Christian Andersen. A dynamic blend of music and social consciousness, Paul has recorded numerous records including the essential Utopian Dystopia and Hierophant dub series on Exalt and his own label. I'm AMC and I'm your host for the next hour or so, during which Paul talks about his musical and cultural heritage, the importance of making a statement through music, and how he made clubbers float carelessly for 20 minutes. This version of the podcast contains the music Paul chose. There's an extended version of the conversation without the music if you want to seek it out. So welcome Paul Hierophant to the next edition of Time Lock, thanks for coming on. It'd be great if you could talk, maybe list a little bit about yourself, what you do, and maybe some of the latest things you've been up to. Cool. Well, first of all, thanks, Alistair, for reaching out to me and inviting me along. Um, I listened to the last one of these that you did with Bill Brewster, and uh, yeah, it feels, it feels quite a, a nice thing to be following in, in Mr. Brewster's footsteps, uh, doing one of these for you. Um, blimey, where do I start? So I make electronic music. Uh, I've been making electronic music for quite a long time now and um, I'm also a DJ and I've been DJing since I think my first paid gig was in 1988 so I'm one of those uh, middle-aged men who fell in love with electronic music at an early age or fell in love with music at an early age and has just carried on doing the thing that you know the passionate thing that, that we've all sort of got in us which is 
wanting to share the love of music. That was very eloquently put. So what happened in 88 then that suddenly got you that first gig? What was the, was there a turning point, a pivot point where and it took off? Or I assume there's a long run up to get to 88. Yeah, so I was always surrounded by, by music. So growing up, my mum's from Kingston, Jamaica, and my dad's Scottish. And so growing up as a kid, there was always a lot of music. Um, you know, we had a lot of reggae, we had a lot of soul, uh, a lot of lot of um, blue beat as well, sort of rock steady. Uh, and then actually my stepfather was very heavily into sort of psychedelic music and all that. So there was always, you know, that allegedly, and I don't know how much truth there is in this, allegedly there was a concert with Tangerine Dream uh, at, at, at Coventry Cathedral in the mid 70s. And apparently I was there. I don't believe it, but I'm told that by my family. <laughs> But I'll, I'll take that, you know, if they're, if they're convinced that I was at that gig, then clearly I was there. But I mean, the point is that music was always pervasive. And also, you know, we we're a fairly politicalized family as any multicultural family will have been in this country because of, you know, growing up in the, in the, in the, in the 70s and the 80s in England, if you weren't aware of some of the, the politics and, you know, institutional racism, you either weren't paying attention or, um, well, I don't know what I think, you know, it would be difficult to have missed that. And so music was pervasive. Um, my my mum and my stepdad promoted a lot of events. So, you know, coming coming home and, and seeing, you know, men with dreadlocks in my house and then realising later it was Benjamin Zephaniah or, you know, hanging out with uh, this really nice woman that was having tea with us and realising later that it was Ruby Turner because she'd been booked to play gigs. You know, this was stuff that I was just brought up with. Pretty impressive. I wish I had some something quite as exciting as that. But um, you're talking about the the music kind of at a very early age and influence. You know, oh, that'd be great. Great thing you in that concert reminds me of. I think DJ Shadow said that his mum went into labour when he when he and obviously mum's tummy was at a Tower of Power concert in San Francisco and Funkadelic were playing at the time. And so he says, that's where I got my funk vibe from. So do you think you, also, you, you clearly you got your vibes a lot from <laughs> from your parents as well? Yeah, but I think also it was an interesting period. So, yeah. you know, I was, growing up in the 70s, I was born in the, in the late 60s, but growing up in the 70s, you've got kind of punk and the fallout from punk. You know, I was always just a little bit too young for punk, but actually it was a real disruptor in terms of um culture uh and just even being on the sort of periphery the ripples uh of of of, of a disruptive event like punk rock had an influence and i remember you know you get then groups like you know the specials and big, there's a big you know big rise in the national front in 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 england in the, in, in the late 70s and uh you know the reaction to that was stuff like rock against racism it was groups like the selector um the beat um uh, you know the two-tone label thing and that was a real sort of reaction um to to this sort of awful dystopian kind of 70s british what was you know what where the culture was potentially going and i think so you've got the energy of punk you've got the reaction with things like two-tone you've then got post-punk and all the sort of post-punk funk stuff coming through you've got protest music anyway and i just think that my my how to describe it my lens 
musically was very much attuned to music not just being uh pinky and perky playing on in the background it was music with conscience mm-hmm. um you know music that actually meant something and i was you know i was brought up heavily listening to black music but heavily listening to black music that was black protest music so you know marvin Gaye, what's going on uh gil scott heron uh people people who were who weren't just wanting to make money and and you know play a major major chord music that's quite positive but talk about social issues and i think that aware that political awareness coupled with the fact that my again as i said my lens was very much focused on protest music meant that i was very receptive to um what was going on around me and it's interesting that we're mentioning this today i won't give away the date but for people listening in it's interesting in 2021 that people are getting very excited and also extremely divided on this country deciding that flags are really important that we should start waving them and all the connotations with that it's interesting how in one way we've moved on in another we just haven't in in what now is over 40 years so uh yeah interesting times so without teeing without spoiling too much it's interesting because you've pretty much given a really good introduction to the tunes and the songs that we're going to talk about today and again with all the guests we've had on and, and you included it's an absolutely superb selection so and it clearly chronicles and sets up what you've just been talking about so the first track is well i mean in fact the first couple i'm just going to say are stone cold classics we start with uh, uptown top ranking aletha and donna i mean i can i can just hear it just jingling along in my head when when when, when i read that so was this one of your early, early kind of influences where did this one kind of kind of crop up from and why did you pick it them checks say we hip and ting True, them no know and ting We have them going and ting Now pop, no style All strictly roots Now pop, no style All strictly roots See me on the road and you not call out to me True, see me in my pants and ting See me in my altar back let me give you heart attack Give me a little bass, make me wine out my waist Uptown top ranking Oh man, I it's that age-old thing, isn't it? Give us a list of of, of, of music that you like and you think, well, okay, here are 45,000 pieces <laughs> that I like and then you bring it down to the perennials, you bring it down to the ones that just every time and to all of the tracks that I've selected today, I can hear them every day of the week and I, they will make me feel a certain way. So that was, again, that was a track I grew up with. I remember hearing that at home a lot and just it's just it's just happy. And also it's women, right? It's black women talking about feeling good about themselves about you know the lyrics the lyrics speak guess at the time as well even then it was fairly unusual right to have what they're singing about how they're singing it in a very male dominated kind of space right yeah exactly that you've got two women singing a song about feeling good about life there's a lot of power in those two women singing that song the other one that i thought about was, was was maybe a track by the lovejoys uh, Lovejoy's two women that did a couple of albums on Wackies 
Um, and, and it's the same sort of vibe. It's just powerful black women singing uh, and, and being a tough, a tough unit. And, you know, um, I think it's very easy when you think about women in music to, 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 to stumble into some fairly horrific stereotypes and also a lot of misogyny from a lot of male artists as well. So yeah, I thought it's in a major key. It always makes me happy. Uh, I've heard it as a kid growing up, that track. And then also, and there's a band that is a bit later, one of the post-punk the post band, uh, post-punk funk band that we've got in there. And I've seen that band uh, probably about, I don't know, 50 times over you know the last couple of decades. And they will always play that as part of their warm-up. And so it's really interesting, a track like that, in the context that I had, and then hearing it as a precursor to, you know, a Killing Joke gig, it 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 it, it works on many levels. It really does. Was it one of those that, that you physically owned as a, as, a, as a kid? Was it one that you went out and bought? Was it from uh, your folks' collection? You know, the physical point certainly when we were growing up that that was a big deal actually owning a piece of music yeah so we owned the record and i i probably now i probably have about 10 copies of it on seven because i keep every time i I see it i'll buy it just because it makes me happy Uh, and it's one of those records that you pay 50p for you know it's not it's not rare it's not a rare bit of vinyl but yeah we owned it but you know my um, the collection, my parents' collection when I was growing up was really diverse. You know, some random Jimi Hendrix stuff, the Tangerine Dream stuff, loads of Scar, loads of Soul. It was just really diverse. It was just it was just a track in, in that collection. But, um, yeah, I, it's, I almost want to hear it now, Ali, to be, uh, to be honest, because it's such a um, beautiful piece of music. <laughs> it is. It certainly is. And funnily enough segues extremely nicely into you know one of the all-time greatest pieces of music ever written there's too many of you cry brother 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 there's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, yeah. Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer for only love can comprehend You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today I'm sensing where this came from, but maybe you could explain a little bit about how you got to Marvin Gaye, and particularly this track, because, I mean, you could pick any. Yeah, and I think just to sort of step out a little bit when I think about music music's always needed for me to resonate and work it's always needed a degree of social conscience and so you know we spoke a few minutes ago about punk and how punk had a social conscience and it was trying to make a point you know it's rebel music and um, all the way up through to Chicago House and Detroit Techno and drum and bass 
all of this is 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 rebel musical for me anyway it's rebel music it's protest music and the moment that music becomes commoditized and it becomes formulaic and often when the major labels get involved it loses that protest so you think about grime when grime was first happening grime wasn't getting airplay you know until until um you know, Marianne Hobbs got on it. It wasn't getting major airplay. Same with drum and bass. Same with same with house music. And then you go back to Motown, and you think, well, hang on. You know, Marvin Gaye disappeared into the studio, worked on this piece of music. Motown, but you know, Barry Gordon was not overly sure about the music. Mm. Did he put this out or not? It was. It was. You know, it was one of those things that it could have broken the label. Um, but he he knew that the, the zeitgeist at the time gave him the confidence that there was too much going on in in in, in America for Afro um, Afro you know Afro American people for it not to be discussed. And that that record is is a powerful piece of music. But the thing that really resonates with me is the hope. So it's a protest. But it ends in major chords and it ends positively. You know, that 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 track, what's going on, it ends absolutely. There is the this can't continue, and unfortunately it has continued, institutional racism, um, you know, the, the, all the issues that come out of the diaspora, they, they they perpetuate. But the bottom line is, whilst they perpetuate, there is still spirit. And that spirit and if you've seen any of the small axe films again you know you see that same spirit in 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 black britain and 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 some of the issues again that 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 perpetuate but the hope's still there so when i listen to what's going on irrespective of 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 my life and what's going on i recognize that whatever be it a class perspective a race perspective a gender perspective even just a mental health perspective there's music that resonates and talks to people and there's music with hope. And so I think when I, you know, when I think about the selection for you or selection, if I'm DJing anything, I'm not just going to play bangers. I'm not just going to play hits. I want to play music that's got soul. And I think that soul comes from a, uh, an, a need to articulate the, um, the human spirit. And actually, the strength of the human spirit for adversity. And that probably makes me sound like a complete um, knob, but that's kind of where I'm at with it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I know. I know. Where you, I, I can feel where you're coming from. So, so what other good protest songs or good, good protest songs is the wrong way of saying it, but protest songs or kind of evocative songs like that that kind of spring to your mind in the, in the same kind of ilk that get you fired up almost? Blimey. Well, the first record I bought, and I think I was eight, was uh, The Rock and Roll Swindle by the Sex Pistols. Oh, there you go. And I remember saving up my pennies. Uh, my sister had a job in a, in a record shop, and uh, they had a second they had a second hand rack. And I remember going in and seeing it. It was something like £3.50 for the gatefold, which was hugely expensive uh-huh. for a second hand record. But I remember buying that and just being blown away by the an- the, the energy uh and 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 the anger and and the power you know the power and the lyrics the lyrics were controversial um and so i think you know you can hear protest music and it might be it might be it might be stiff little fingers or it might be some funkadelic or it might be you know different different shades of of artists are going to put things out that that are that have that sort of protest in the pogues billy bragg 
um you know all all of these all of these artists i'm now struggling to find uh, an erudite list of um <laughs> of, of protest songs but i think even if you look at folk music you look at the folk tradition you know you look at listen to groups like the unthanks uh you know the the the, the two sisters the unthanks sisters they're writing folk folk songs that have been passed from generation to generation uh in this country you know northumbrian folk and that's protest music that's about, that's about white working class people talking about their experiences of working in pits or not having money because they, they, you know, they, 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 they're landlords of, you know, whatever it will be. And I think when I look at music, I look, you know, I want I want to be able to dance to it. I want to enjoy the, the, the rhythm. Um, but also, again, it's that substance. It needs that substance. Yeah, it does. But it also needs sincerity as well, because if we kind of swerve back to what's going on, uh, obviously the original is is untouchable. And it just starts to get my mind thinking about everyone who's ever done a cover of what's going on, right from the, you know, the kind of cheesy end, poptastic versions through to, you know, whoever like Robert Palmer and all that kind of stuff. And you you start to think it kind of loses the, the power of it somewhat. And so it, I think sincerity is, is almost as important as, as, as the song itself. Yeah, I think I think you're dead right. I think a facsimile of something is always going to be a facsimile of something. And I think if you think about house music, uh, just sort of going forward a couple of decades or a decade and a half to Chicago, that was very much working class black music from ghettos. Uh, and you won't get the same vibe. I'm probably going to get flamed for this, but you won't get the same vibe from that you get from an early tracks record from something that's been produced um, now. You just won't. It's different. Yeah, very much so. Again, you've highlighted it a few times, particularly with your first record that you bought, that kind of uh, punk, pure punk, as it were. And we've already mentioned the band Killing Joke, and this is the track, The Butcher, but that's 81, so we've moved from punk to kind of post-punk new wave almost. This one, I have to say, really got my ears twitching when I was listening to it again this morning, because obviously after what's going on, it's quite a different sound, first of all. But somehow there's a kind of, there is a link there somehow, because 
even though the sound is different, there's definitely a lot of soul that's coming through in it, which I hope makes sense. So, yeah, so you, you've kind of gone from the, the reggae to the to the soul, and now we get into the new wave. That's quite a quite a change. So, you know, is that an age thing? Is that you growing up and being influenced by things you're picking up elsewhere outside your folks, or is it still kind of within your family where's this coming from yeah, that's a really really good point so up until uh, you know sort of the Gil Scott Herons the Marvin Gaye's the um, Curtis Mayfields all of this was the stuff that was uh, Toots and the Maytal all of this was the stuff that, that was that was happening at home and then um, like most people of a certain age John Peel sort of crept into my subconscious and um, I remember you know I used to listen to the John Peel show religiously uh, either with a little tape recorder going uh, or a pen and paper trying to you know write down the tracks and I remember him playing this track and just it resonated you know it was it was angry but it was funky mm. uh, I think this is Paul Raven and, and Youth Martin as well were in the lineup at this stage you know Youth's gone on to do amazing things Paul Raven's no longer with us but uh, you know and then you've got Geordie Geordie playing guitar Geordie's you know, I don't have heroes, but if I had a guitar hero, it would be Geordie Walker, because what he what he does with that Gibson is is unbelievable. Uh, and then you've got Jazz Coleman, who's just very unique musically. And so I remember hearing that track on on, on the John Peel show and just thinking, whatever this is, I need it in my life, hmm. um, because you've got the, the 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 depth, the the anger. The political commentary and again we talk about issues that are uh, still relevant today butcher that track it's about the environment right watching the decoys of all descriptions sparkle of color creating illusions the liars are out they have all the assets what was it um, crawling for gold they were you know whatever it is it's butcher the womb and expect her to, to, to bear it's all about what we do for profit to the environment, and that was written in the yeah, as you said, in the in the late seventies, uh, early eighties, sorry. And uh, that whole album is um, absolutely stunning, and it was pivotal for me um, hearing hearing Killing Joe. And as I said, I mean, I've probably seen that band live over fifty times over the years because. Um, they're a very controversial band. They they definitely uh, get a reaction, which is what they want. But if you think about groups who have maintained their musical integrity um, whilst watching people around them hoover up ideas from them and become very successful, um, in no way suggesting plagiarism, but if you think about um, Come As You Are by Nirvana, that's a killing joke uh, riff. And they, you know, they had to uh, come to an arrangement with Killing Joke uh, about that particular riff because they were heavily influenced. Lots of bands were heavily influenced by Killing Joke. Uh, and I think Killing Joke could have probably been a bit more commercial and would have been a lot more successful. But that was never their bag, right? They, they had enough. They, they positioned themselves, I think, exactly where they wanted to position themselves. So they had the artistic freedom to do what they want and they didn't have the pressure from major labels to... Um, you know, make make five albums that are like that, but better for top ten. To see a band that many times, I have to ask you: are they are they your favourite group? Yeah, I don't really do I don't really do heroes, but I do. There's something about seeing them live. Um, there's something about the fact that I go and see them. I haven't seen them for a few years now. Um, you, there's a bit of a fraternity around that group. 
and so you see the same sort of people and the gigs are very it just feels like a bit of a gathering uh to be honest and um yeah there there is but there's something about seeing uh you know four people on stage making that noise making that sound creating that atmosphere that's quite visceral uh and i i don't think i've experienced many other bands that are able to quite do it in the same way that that band did and clearly still having the same impact and power that they had in 81 i'm guessing (laughs) they must do otherwise you wouldn't have seen them that many times well there are a couple of duff albums but we don't talk about (laughs) fair enough yeah, this is an interesting band. It's I'd say you know, I'm a bit younger, but it's a band that I'd always heard of but never listened to, but I knew of because of youth and his work then with the Orb and Alex Patterson and all that kind of stuff. And it always used to be, I remember reading An Enemy and Melody Maker and whatever it was, and so-and-so youth, brackets, killing joke. It was like it was his second name in everything. Every time he was up, it was like, Man, Killing Jump must be really good. And I, it was one of those things I just never went back and, to listen to. So it's been yeah. really interesting hearing you talk passionately about them because clearly, clearly you've got a lot going on and it's worth investigating. Well, I mean, you think about youth. Youth is, he's a brilliant bass player, right? He's a brilliant musician per se and he's a, he's a fantastic producer. Um, but what he was bringing into the, the group was a lot of funk. And, uh, you know, there was a period when the band, I think Jazz and Geordie went off to Iceland. That's, you know, it's a famous period when they went off because the world was going to end and clearly it did, but no one noticed. And uh, Youth formed a, a group called Brilliant and he got some sort of commercial success of it. But Brilliant was just, was just, um, was funk. Uh, and and so, you know, Youth being in, in that group was bringing obviously the production there, but also he was bringing, I think, a lot of funk in, in into the group. Uh, just as one of those influences but um yeah phenomenal phenomenal band and phenom- phenomenal commitment to um doing things their way and i think it's very easy to become distracted by specifically by the music industry and by trends and uh, i think that can be that can be a sort of a trap for people mm-hmm. and of course brilliant also had jimmy Coulty. Later, obviously, one half of the KLF. KLF are now re-releasing all of their material in batches on all the streaming platforms after promising they would never do it or give 23 years of silence. So it's all it's all circular. Everything kind of connects together. It's funny. Well, here's the thing in terms of things connecting. So you mentioned Alex, uh, Alex from the Orb. So Alex is the um, warm-up DJ for Killing Joke. So yeah. <laughs> go and see Killing Joke live. Uh, Alex will be the DJ and Alex will play Uptown Top Ranking. <laughs> I love it.
shift gears a little bit. So that was 81. We've now going to fast forward five years to 86. And you mentioned it to me on message that uh, you're listening to Bill's interview uh, to listeners. If you've not heard Bill Brewster's Time Lock, please go check it out. It's an absolute whopper. Great, great episode. And he chose Schooly D. He chose Dedication to the B-Boys. Uh, you've chosen It's Crack, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, do you know what? I listened back to it this morning, to the um, the Bill Brewster thing, because you know, Bill, Bill Brewster's a, uh, a superb person, and uh, I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking, oh, no, <laughs> we've both chosen the same artist. And actually, the thing... So, Schooly D entered my life probably i forgot when the first album was was it 84 or something there was the and i'm i'm rubbish at album names but i know there was a green one and there was an orange one and um the the first the first one the orange one i think we had a copy of that and a copy of that and it was um almost like it was a homemade album i'm getting it and it being a very expensive import and then i think rhythm king or someone got on it and it got a bit of a uk reissue but um hearing that again it was raw raw um just you know a bit of scratching an 808 uh, and maybe some you know some rudimentary uh, monosynth action going on but very very raw very unpolitically correct lyrics that you probably you know maybe not certain that you know again a fair bit of misogyny going on there i think which isn't isn't palatable now but of its time that was of its time and uh, you know, I remember hearing Schooly D in the same way that you know, hearing Public Enemy when I was first hearing Public Enemy when they first started producing as well, and those records getting over to the UK, and it, it was different. It was very angry. It was very black. Uh, it was very funky, but it was it was just different music. And it's the same with this sort of the early electro stuff that was coming through as well. This is music that was um, very different not not uh, but but again you can trace the lineage so you know i listened to uh you know that, that track that track it's crack and you've got um a craftwork sample uh in it and so it's kind of i almost i always think of it as the most electro record released around about that time that wasn't really electro because it was hip-hop but i'll play it in electro sense because it's just got that kind of, yeah, it's got the craftwork sound, it's got the scratching, it's got the samples, it's got that lovely, really basic 808 um, beat. And, you know, I can program an 808 in and it's just, it just doesn't have, you know, I don't know if they recorded it onto tape or what they did with it, but the way it sounds, it's just really raw uh, and just very, very, very minimal because they're trusting the instruments, they're trusting the vibe that they've got and they probably didn't spend you know, a month in the studio doing it. That was probably, again, back to the track stuff, the early house stuff, and even some of the early Detroit techno stuff. You know, these were tracks that were written quickly uh, because they just, they nailed it. Uh, and that that just comes through on, on that Schooly D track. You know, it's just, it, it, it just flows. It, it It's just, yeah, it's just really simple and it just flows beautifully. Yeah, it does. And... There's something about the production on that, which is, as you said, you said it's raw. I think I uh, said to Bill, it's almost, to me, my is just slightly dusty. It's it, and, and probably more ways than one. But but there's something you, you can't recreate by putting on, I know, some sort of atmospheric filter that you do today in Ableton or something. There's something very, very almost beyond raw to it. And if, if you think about things like African Bambata and you, you go, well, you know, similar, you know, craftwork samples, 
electro house you know but it's not that's like super polished even though that was pretty raw back then this is way more it's not crude but there's something in it that hasn't been recreated since because i think there's a there's almost a kind of there's an innocence to it from a production perspective you've got guys who've got some kit and they've either got a two inch tape or they've even put it on, on on a cassette. I'd love to know what it was recorded on, actually. It's probably out there somewhere online. But just, yeah, the production is just really basic because it, it didn't need to be anything more. But generally, once people have got their head around production, then it becomes more, oh, we need a bit of reverb on that. Or, you know, we should get a space echo on that or we should do, you know, whatever it's going to be. And this, the, it, it hasn't been messed with. Uh, and, you know, I, I wonder what else they wrote that day. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Because you, you get you get a sense of just music being made for music sense, and it being very, very, very. Um, what's the right word? Just raw. Yeah, I think mm. you with just that word. It's just it, it's it's raw. And I think uh, I'm trying to think. I'm back a minute. Was it? What's the guy that does FXHE? Is it Levon Vincent? No. It's, but there's something about his production on his earlier. It's going to really bug me that on on his earlier earlier records. There's another guy from Detroit, and um, he a lot of bad compression. You know, really over compressed, very basic um, music. And after a while, you know, he's. I think probably people are saying, ah, oh, you know, you should probably put it through a, an SSL, or you should do this, that, and the other. And you can see he's saying, no, no, no. Actually, this is my sound. I really like it. Uh, and you know he's he's arrived at something really again really basic that works, and I think there's just a lot to be said. For that. I mean, what, what what more do you need? You need a drum machine. You need someone that can spit some lyrics, uh, and 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 take it from there, right? Don't don't overdo it. I think the problem we have now with production is well, one of the issues that we have is just so much choice. I can go out and get a copy of Ableton or Fruity Loops or whatever it might be, and uh, it's full of reverbs and compression and delays and um soft synths and i i've got too much choice and uh you know one of the things that i've been doing from a production perspective a lot recently is just limiting myself to two bits of kit and just working with that rather than oh i'll add a bit of this and i'll add a bit of that and just keep it really simple because actually if you can't get something that sounds good and is authentic with a couple of bits of kit maybe you shouldn't bother you know what, you're the fifth or sixth person who said this, I think, in the last couple of months when I've been talking to uh, folks like yourself for, for this and for, for, other, for other projects, and they've all said the same thing. It's great that you've got access to this, but it's too much choice, and it, it kills productivity to a certain extent. Embr embrace your limitations is what uh, Artists Will Remain na Nameless told me once, and uh, I think that sounds true. So I, I, I spent uh, a couple of years, so I, I write music and I spent a couple of years trying to do music on computers uh, and uh, it just, it, this is years ago and it wasn't working for me. And so I, I would just jam and when I felt that the jam was all right, I'd press record and if, if it was good, then brilliant. And if it wasn't, then that was it. And I wouldn't keep patches and a lot of the stuff I do is on modular synthesizers anyway. So I couldn't re recreate it. And there was something really nice about the fact that I would sit and I'd jam and I'd press record. And if it was good, then that's great. And if it wasn't, well, that was a shame, but it's done. As opposed to I'll fix it in the edit or I'll, I'll, I'll rearrange the MIDI notes. It was just right. 
pro, you know, get a basic sequence on a drum machine, get a basic sequence on a on a couple of little hardware sequences, press play, jam, play with some effects, see what comes out of it. And actually, some really good stuff's come out of that approach. And I think it's good just to sort of not allow yourself the indulgence of uh, fixing it in the mix. Well, speaking of limitations, maybe the wrong way of thinking about it, but the the ability of technology at a certain point in time when we start to get to the early 90s actually pretty much all the way through to mid-end 90s obviously kit is developing and technology is developing but compared to today it's 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 tiny steps and so when you think of the next track florence a touch of heaven you're talking of sequencing you know abilities to take tiny seconds of samples and loop them and what have you i mean we, we're getting to the point of real limitations but an incredible productivity incredible quality of electronic music in almost its not purest form but certainly in its most evolving form i think that we've seen so you know listening to this track is just a joy we talked about djing in 88 this is 91 shout outs with this track i mean the first the first thing is i used to shop i I used to run a record shop um and we'd get sell a lot of soul music a lot of r&b a lot of reggae um um drum and bass hardcore uh all, all of that stuff um there was some stuff that i just couldn't find and i just wasn't coming to me so i used to uh, I almost feel like this is uh, admitting to a bit of infidelity. So I ran a record shop, but I was buying records from Fat Cat for myself as well. So I, I had a little, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have a, a, a little part of a corner in the Fat Cat record shop back in, where were they? Was it Earlham Street? I can't remember where they used to be. I think it was Earlham Street in London. And they would put a stash by for me and then, you know, every now and then I'd send them, send them a check and they'd send me a bunch of records and I'd be like, why can't I get these in my shop? But anyway, <laughs> um, it was just, it was just the way it was, you know, those guys were, were superb. And, uh, and Jelly Jam before them as well, Jelly Jam back in Brighton used to get some, Luke Slater and Alan Sage used to work there and used to get some amazing tracks there that actually, you know, just who knew, who knew where they were coming from. And, um, but yeah, Evolute, Evolute Records. So this tracks, it's, it's, um, by Florence, which is a Stefan Robbers um, sort of pseudonym, and it's on the label Evolute. And I remember getting it and just in one of my, um, you know, 
food parcels from Fat Cat Records, getting it and just listening to it and just, yeah, the beauty, the emotion, the production, very good uh, production on it. It wasn't Detroit techno, but it had that uh, kind of pure techno, you know, you used the word pure a minute ago, and it's very much this kind of vibe, the pure techno vibe, as opposed to sort of the more hardcore-y sort of uh, mentasm-y stuff. This was proper pure techno. But the thing is, I got it and I loved it, and then I did a gig with the guys from Bandulu. I used to promote a lot as well. And I got them, um, I'm trying to think who was on that lineup. Um, Jamie Bismarck, Ben Long, and um, uh, Lewis Keogh. And I'd seen Lewis do a warm up for the Orb. Um, Lewis, I don't know what happened to him. He was an amazing DJ. But anyway, and these are all guys that used to play at Lost back in the day as well. And um, so I got them to come up to my, one of the clubs I, I, I had at that time and, and, and sort of do a night with me. And, um, you know, I was a bit in, in awe of Bandula and, and the sort of whole Bandula thing because they had real attitude, but also they were doing the sort of dub techno thing really well. Uh, and you'd, you know, seen them at Lost and they were just, they were very much, they were very on it. Um, and then they dropped this track. And the thing, the thing that had got me about this, this track is I'd play it at, you know, at, 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 you know plus, or plus or minus zero. And it was just quite nice and melancholy. And they were like, right, plus eight, and mix in a bit of underground resistance after it. And it was such a game changer for me, hearing this piece of music that I'd been um, really liking as this mellow track, hearing it played by those guys at plus eight, mixed into a bit of underground resistance, and then into a bit of Jeff Mills. And it was like, oh my God, you can do this stuff, and it can be pounding. And I, I hadn't made that, that connection of, of, you know, even like they were playing stuff like um, InSync Storm plus eight, and, and it was this, this stuff that to me had been quite ambient and quite mellow, or just quite melancholy. Ramp it up, and then all of a sudden it was just like a different, different perspective on this kind of this sort of spiritual, um, true sort of techno stuff that was coming. It's meant to be played very fast, uh, and and then all of a sudden, yeah, you're mixing that in with a bit of something on Axis or you know something that you've got from somewhere in Detroit or whatever it might be and it's just got a different a different vibe still the same heavenly sort of thing and I remember I remember that night there were a bunch of people in that that specific club night and that was in Hull there were a bunch of people who'd been like wary about coming to the nights they didn't like techno and by the end of the night they were just like oh my god there's so much beauty in this music uh and I remember I mean whatever current opinions are around Derek May, I go back to 1988 or 89, the first time I heard Strings of Life. It's one of those records, I heard it in a club, um, and it just brought me to tears um, because of the sheer rawness, going back to your point earlier about Schooly D, the sheer rawness of that piece of track. I had never heard anything like that, and I'd heard a lot of music by you know by sort of the time that, that Transmat was sort of spitting out vinyl. I've never heard anything like that. I've never heard that level of sort of industrial, mechanical, um, soulful black music. Uh, and then, yeah, you go forward a few years and then you've got Stefan Roberts producing something similar, but actually it's just good music as opposed to, you know, uh, anything else. So, yeah, it's a bit, bit, bit ranty, but yeah, that's the story behind that record. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's playing the right records, but not necessarily at the right speed. But it doesn't really matter. If it works, it works. And yeah, the techno gets a bad rap. 
people listening or dancing if it's dancing as possible 200 beats per minute and you know endless banging drums i mean that's not that's not techno this as you say has a lot of depth a lot of body a lot of soul to it and this is a great example of that i think it's a, it's a great track great great ep i think it's on carl craig's it was out on planet e i think it was out on his label split. yeah it was a split it came out on planet e and it came out on evolute as well i bought yeah. it uh, initially, because I, I was a bit of a Planet E fiend, uh, I've probably got everything on that label uh, until I forgot. There was a, there was a, a pivotal point when I stopped buying records on Planet E, but um, so I initially got it as a Planet E thing, and it was like, hang on, this is really interesting. Uh, and then back to the guys in Fat Cat, right? What else have you got? And I think the first five Evolutes are all absolutely, um, absolutely stunning. It's a whopper, that's for sure. Speaking of whoppers, I will admittedly hold my hands up and say that when I heard this today, uh, I immediately got onto Discogs and bought it. That's Galaxy to Galaxy, <laughs> Journey of the Dragons. I don't know how this has ever... It's one of those embarrassing ones I just hold my hands up and say, I've never heard this before until today. And then I look and go, this is 1993. How the hell didn't I... Have I not heard this before? So it is incredible. It's just, it just melted my ears. Uh, I don't know what to say. And a real interesting reading about it. A whole bunch of people involved in this one as 
well, tons of links all over the place from Juan Atkins, Derek May, links to Kevin Sampson, everyone in between. So, yeah, what's the story on this one? Yeah, well, I mean, the first question I've got is how much did you pay for this record, Alistair? Um, yeah, I paid enough. Let's just put it that way. It's not cheap, is it? It's not cheap, no. So, I mean, I think the thing is, we come back to, to authenticity and protest and the records that were coming out of that part of America um, have always been, you know, music that's coming out of that part of America has always been tinged with melancholy and always been tinged with um, a, a degree of, of hardship. It's a hard place. Detroit is a hard place. Um, you know, and, and, and sort of the Motown artists before Motown moved were dealing with that hardness and everything in between. And, and you've got Mike Banks and um, it's funny, I could be I could have been saying what I'm saying now any time over the last 20 years, um, which which is a testament to those those guys and, and their whole sort of community approach. But, you know, Mike Banks had a vision and very much in the 90s, um, I, 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 I think they were they were unstoppable as a musical force in terms of making music with attitude, that punk sense again of like we can do this ourselves in the same way that you know the, the punk punk bands were producing white labels and doing their own fanzines and they didn't really care about the people outside of their, their universe. they were doing it for themselves. Und, uh, underground resistance, Mike banks, somewhere in Detroit. This was all about, right, we have our sound, we're not gonna compromise what we're doing, and we are gonna absolutely knock it out of the park in terms of the quality. So the musicality on that track is unbelievable. The production is is superb. These aren't people, go back to the Schooly D example a few years ago, you know, a few minutes ago, Schooly D with, you know, we, we assume it's a fairly rudimentary setup. This isn't rudimentary. I mean, it's still probably not SSL desks, but this is this is a, a an advanced setup, and this is very good engineering going on to create that track. But then the, again, the soul that comes through it, the fact that you know you you're getting those strings, you're getting the sort of the the, the the sort of all the stabs. You've got the beats, that sort of kind of electro rhythm to it as well. And it's um it's another one of those records. I remember the first time I put that, you know, I got that, I got that in my record shop, and it was like, wow, this is. This is a statement, and all of the records that were coming out from uh, Underground Resistance and that crew at that time, they were all statements. And there's a huge amount of um, social commentary as well. This isn't just, you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, I'm not going to use any disparaging terms, but, you know, sort of the whole Miami, I'm hanging out with a bunch of sort of topless women, I'm drinking I'm drinking cocktails and driving around in my, in my, you know, in my Mercedes with my gold. None of that nonsense, right? There's no need for that. This is social conscience. And you think about, you know, come forward to 2016 and Dookie Machine and tracks like that, and they're talking about water quality in Michigan, right? Uh, and if you think about Underground Resistance and the whole Somewhere in Detroit project, there's a whole community program that's coming out of that because they recognise the, 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 you know, that the money that they're generating from the records that they're selling into Europe can go to help build outreach, go to help build community um, structures in, in their city. And I think all of us as, as people that are passionate about music, 
need to be thinking about our communities and what we do for our communities rather than just being sort of you know uh, obsessed looking inwards at music and not looking outwards at what music and the money from music or even the positive vibes from music can do to communities and I think that's the thing that comes through to me uh, with a lot of the music that I'm again that came out of came out of the underground resistance stamp you know Mike, Mike Banks absolutely has stuck to his principles and um i think it's hard to do that i think the lure of money uh is is one that you know you're a struggling artist and you want to put out more than two or three singles a year that you know that are nearly bankrupting you because you're not sure you know what the revenue is going to be like if you're going to sell all the copies and then a major label says yeah we like the stuff you know here's here's a seven album deal but we want you to do the following things i think it's very difficult to say no to that but actually unless you're really lucky you know you're going to get screwed if you sign a deal like that and i think you know there was a lot of interest in in underground resistance as this kind of fully formed um uh concept and it's not a fully formed concept these are people living real lives talking about the stuff that they were seeing every day and uh you know it it, it wasn't a shrink wrapped um media friendly thing and I, I i admire that but yeah what a wicked piece of music it's it's insanely good and it reminds me a lot of choice and acid eiffel there's a kind of similarity there same years there's something about the the keys on that the again the melancholy feel which i'm always a sucker for all the music i i love has to pretty much has some melancholy running through it and those two have got that and but there's something about this journey of the dragons there's something that's being said that's not being said but it's just just got that, that sad tinge to it and then as, as you've articulated the kind of context the people involved where it's coming from then it kind of adds all that other other layer to it and uh, really brings it home yeah yeah I, it's i mean i think it's interesting you talk about acid eiffel so that came out on transmat originally didn't it i think it was on ff uh french label the great the great again i don't remember labels i remember colors it's on a great label ff and or whatever it's called, I can't remember, I've got a copy of it knocking around somewhere, but that track again, you think about Asalon and Garnier, wasn't it, that was it was, it's a long, yeah, Fnac. yeah, it's a long, it's a long record that, uh, and uh, as is the Galaxy to Galaxy track, and this is like having a confidence, right, I'm going to write an opus, I'm going to write nine minutes worth of music that's going to take people on the journey, and, um, you know, it's going to work, and it's going to be great, and I remember, you know, hearing both of those tracks the first couple of times that, that they were sort of out and just this is an emotional experience but also yeah like yourself i'm a sucker for a minor key you can play me something in a major key and i'm going to tune out play me something in a minor key and i'm all over it you know yeah. My, diminished sevenths oh god yeah <laughs> can't get enough of them it just hits the mark every time
Well, same era, but we're, we're talking about epic opuses. This is a 20-minute opus, and I, I was just again having a bit of a bit of fun looking into this one today. There's a great quote I saw on Discogs that said, "Yeah, you play this and then quote watch people aimlessly float for 20 minutes," which I thought was fantastic. This is a um, basic channel quadrant dub two. So we fast forward a year. That quote, I can just picture it. I can picture the era. I can picture what's going on. But you were there and you were doing it. So I, I, maybe that rings true to you. Did you? Were you one of the people watching, or were you one of the people aimlessly, <laughs> aimlessly going for floating for twenty minutes? I came this record. I absolutely came this record at the time. I played it um, a lot in clubs. Uh, and you know, I mean, I think all of these, all of the records that are on that I've played, I've played out at various stages. Um, it, but again, it's something about the dub techno is an interesting one for me. So um, I've made a lot of dub techno. I've released very small amounts of it. Um, when I started my label, Hierophant Records, the first record I put out was by Rod Medell, who records under the name Deep Chord. And um, you know, I really like. I really like dub techno, and when you listen to the stuff that Rod Rod Medell's done, or you listen to the basic channel stuff, and Moritz von Oswald, um, uh, you know Max Max um, and Esther stuff, there's a real authenticity to it. These are guys that know how to use a studio, and they've got a love of reggae, and they've got a love of electronic music, and they they know how to make. And I mean, the, the challenge I had with with Hierophant um, was I thought yeah, I wanted to release a lot of this this stuff, and I'd got some of my stuff, other people's music, and then I just got hit with formulaic music, and and so whenever I listen to dub techno now, I kind of uh, again I, I look at it through the lens of basic channel deep chord lens, and ninety five percent of the stuff ain't passing muster because it just feels formulaic. There's a kick and a stab and a bit of a delay and a lot of a delay and a wash and maybe a bit of a harmonizer doing a bit of, you know, that even tied kind of um, harmonizer thing, uh, a bit of spring reverb. You know, it, it doesn't cut mustard. Um, but this this track, the depth of, 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 of that basic channel track, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and again, in the same way that you know, we were talking about Tangerine Dream earlier, you know, electronic music and like Rising High, you know, Casper Pound hit on it, you know, pioneers of the, of the hypnotic groove. This is hypnotic groove stuff. Uh, and so in terms of, yeah, people floating around clubs, put a track like that on, uh, a mix, I don't know, something underneath it that's a bit more, you know, a bit with a bit more energy. And it's it's quite an amazing thing. So 20 minute track, did you play in its entirety or were you, what else were you doing with it? Or did you just let it breathe and do its thing? So I'm fortunate, right? When I started DJing, I started DJing in 1988, and I was playing. Uh, I was I was doing a night with um, a guy called Dave Brennan, who uh, ran a, a label called Oh my God, uh, Pork Production. So he'd put out stuff like Fila Brasilia and all all, all, all of that stuff. And um, yeah, I did. A, so I, I was doing a, a reggae a, a, a reggae night. I was playing dub. So my first gigs in, in the late 80s were playing dub reggae. And then I moved into playing uh, more sort of electronic stuff, and I was going out to all the sort of the big, the big sort of South Circular parties and more South Circular M25 parties and Blab and Rays and all that stuff. And um, but it meant that 
I trusted the music so I could play a track like that, like that basic channel track, and yeah, play it for its entirety. Play it twice, mix a copy into a copy, do what you need to do, you know, finish it and play an a cappella, and then play something, you know, and play and play, I don't know, some hip house or play whatever you wanted to put on afterwards. Because I, I, I don't know, I think my approach to music has always been very much play across the board and try not to get too much in, in, in stuck into one particular genre. Um, you might get into a groove for a few hours or, you know, uh, in a set, but mix it up a bit, put something else in there as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think now what, 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 what I would have directly mixed out of. I don't know. I mean, there's stuff like, um, uh, and again, now I can think of this, the, the album sleeve and I can't think of them. Exquisite Corpse. Uh, as a Belgian label KK and they did a load of really um, deep uh, almost tribal um, sort of dubby dubby sort of very long records and some of those it's funny no one was really into those at the time and uh, you know you'd pick them up for like a quid because people just couldn't get their head around them. I think now they're all, they're all being reissued everything gets reissued mm. but, um, yeah whatever it was just didn't really matter just keep the vibe going so it's a beauty that one and one of those tracks as well even as 20 minutes you, you have it on and before you know it it's gone it definitely as you said because it's not formulaic um it hasn't been put on a grid and you've just dragged and dropped you know every fourth bar do this it just keeps your mind occupied and therefore yeah it, it time travels pretty quick when that happens it's a great big, great great tune but they're jamming as well and yeah. I think that's the thing that that comes through is that's a lot that you know there's a lot of jamming going on there that isn't that isn't uh, an elaborately programmed you know they've set up the, the the signal chain and they've probably done a few passes and then there's been a, a, a fair bit of studio trickery going on afterwards but there's an initial jam there and that jam has that energy and that vibe and it's yeah. quite it's quite spectacular but i think i think the thing is um it's very easy to replicate well not very easy to replicate but you know you can replicate a style um, but what what Moritz von Oswald did is he defined a style and if you think about the underground resistance crew you think about Schooly D or you think about Killing Joke or you think about Marvin Gaye or Alfie and Don or any of these people they've all done their own thing they've all done their own thing and you know they might have had a bit of studio help Marvin Gaye might have had a bit of Benny, Benny Gordon helping him out with stuff you know, Killing Joke might have had a bit of who was their engineer, um, Connie Plank, you know, trying to help them out, uh, just steering the direction a little bit. But the bottom line is they found their they found their sound and they've thought, right, this is us, this is what we're gonna do, this is this is how we're gonna play it, rather than looking at what everyone else is doing and trying to do a facsimile. And I think that's why Hierophant Records didn't do any any more dub techno. I had ten releases ready to put out. That were all, uh, you know, that, that were good. But then, just the more I listened to them, the more I could just hear the formula. And if I hear a formula, I'm out of there. And you did five in the end, right? I think was it five? Uh, there's been offshoots. There are there are a right. few few out there. And then there's the dubs, Horrifant dubs. And there's been, yeah. there's been there's five of those. There's two that are stuck in various stages of production at the moment. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. fine. That, that's another story, isn't it? <laughs> Pressing plants and just the craziness there is in the world at the moment and the backlog, it's insane. Yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. that.
So, this has been fantastic, Paul. I can't believe that we've actually got to the end, uh, but we're fast-forwarding quite a lot. We go to 94 to 2006. So I'm curious, there's, there's a big, big step here. We go to Arpanet, uh, Infinite Destiny, a track I didn't know too much about. So is there a reason for this skip? Why is this one made to your kind of big list? You, did you rinse this one a lot as well? those 10 years I um, I did a lot less DJing um, I at one stage nearly sold my record collection uh, and thank God the guys at Re- Reckless uh, let me take a few minutes to consider it because uh, they'd come around to buy everything and uh, I had a bit of, it's weird I had an emotional reaction they offered me a fair price for my vinyl and went to shake hands and I couldn't shake his hand and he just said right I'm gonna go for a walk I'll come back in a minute and he came out and said I can't uh, I can't sell my collection I'm, even though I hadn't DJed for a couple of years at that stage mm. I, I wasn't done and then it was just you know I think looking looking listening trying to find stuff that had that spark dub techno had that to a degree um, and then and then and I've always people talk about Drexia I was, this is, I'm going to probably get murdered with pitchforks for saying this. I was never that keen on Drexia. I like Drexia, but I was never that keen about, about, about them. But then when um, one half of Drexia, Gerald Donald, started the Arpanet project, that had it for me. That absolutely had that kind of electronic spikiness and that sort of attitude. But also that sort of solitude and isolation and urban, uh, terrible, I'm using terrible words to describe how that music made me feel. And it, it moved on that kind of electronic music from, you know, I was listening to in, I don't know, the street sound days, all of that stuff. It moved it on and it gave it a really kind of almost like an androgynous, uh, you know, in the same way that, in the same way, that, I don't know, Humanly Dare album had a kind of vibe to it, you know, mm. or even in John Fox, you know, Metamatics or, or even Gary Newman, that kind of cold and electronic. But then with that urban sense that I was getting from the Galaxy to Galaxy stuff and even from Schooly D, you know, or from any, any, any of that other sort of urban music. And so, yeah, Arpanet, Infinite Destiny, I still play that record now. And it's just, there's something about it. It's very sterile with a lot of emotion, and that sounds like a complete sort of uh, it's completely counterintuitive. But there was, and the production as well, very, very simple, uh, very hard to do, but very simple production, and just yeah, metallic. That's the word metallic. It's really clean and shiny, but it's not over overly clean and shiny if that as you say it's got that got that urban grime to it but just the patterns the drum patterns in them that I immediately thought cool this sound this could be a Com Trues record or something it's got that very 
ever so slight repeater patterns going on it uh, but it's 2006 which unbelievably is what 15 years ago now but it still, it still sounds pretty modern today it, does, it hasn't dated i think no i think you're on the money there it hasn't dated and and the thing about again we talk about authenticity and there's an authenticity around around that artist's work uh which um means that you know some people sort of hide behind not doing interviews they hide behind being you know sort of the baseless techno sort of thing and then other people are just they're just doing their own thing they don't need to engage with the media the music can do the talking and i think when you look at ARPANET and you look at all the projects that come out of, of Gerald Donald, who's the sort of brains behind that that project, they've all got the same kind of aesthetic, which is here's the music, take the music, enjoy the music. You don't need to get into the artist and what the artist had for breakfast and does the, the artist wear Armani or Levi's. It doesn't matter. Here's the music and engage with the music. And it's the same thing that... Moritz von Oswald did. He didn't do interviews for years. There's no point. Just listen to the music and enjoy the music. But the other thing as well is you're talking about um, originality, artistic integrity, and actually um, in the same way that Basic Channel, if I look at the the template for good dub techno, I look to Basic Channel and, 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 and Deep Chord. If I look for the template for good contemporary electronic music, like Electro, it's Gerald Donald, it's Arpitech, it's 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 Doppler effect, it's it's uh, Doppler effect. Sorry, it's 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 that kind of that's the bar, um, and you know it's 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 easy to make facsimiles, but facsimiles as as good as that now, it's very 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 difficult to do it because of that authenticity. I think it's very difficult to fake. Uh, can't fake the feeling, right? I think it's very difficult to do that. <laughs> throw Keep that. the music, can't fake the feeling. Um, no, I know exactly exactly what you mean. Um, Hunt was that? Yeah, it is. Uh, Geraldine Hunt. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Which absolutely. Still play as well. <laughs> there you go. But that, again, that's a timeless classic too. I'm going to wrap up uh, shortly. And uh, 2006. Today's 2021. Were there any tunes the more mod, uh, more recent times that almost made the cut but didn't quite make it? That's an evil question. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> loads. I mean, who didn't who didn't make it in? Dilla didn't make it in. Jay Dilla didn't make it in. Bless him. Right. Who else didn't make the cut? Um, my goodness. Anthony Rota didn't make the cut. Uh, Plant 43 from an electro perspective. Um, um, Morley, what's his surname? Uh, his first name. Oh, God, I can never remember. I'm terrible. I, I'm, I'm, I can picture records. I'm, I'm probably the worst person for you to ever talk to about music because I can picture the sleeves. Um, there's loads. I mean, I think the thing, the thing I'd say is I... I'm passionate about electronic music, but there's also a lot of soul and funk as well. But that's not what you're asking, right? You're asking for some specific tracks. Do you know what I'm going to do? Hang on a sec. Right. I've got a pile of vinyl here. <laughs> and I'm just going to pull this stuff out. So, for example, uh, Pitt Williams. So, uh, London, uh, London Module Alliance. They're amazing producers. Uh, they release a lot of stuff on Kurt de Giorgio's art records. Um, and Phil Ventures is sort of the one, one third of that group. He's, he's an, I think, a, a musical genius. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so London Module Alliance, anything with um, um, Phil Ventures' name on it is worth buying. Um, DMX crew, 
Ed, Edward Upton, you know, he's an amazing producer. And he's been producing for a very, very, very long time. And again, he has his own style, um, you know, as, as DMX crew and all the other sort of aliases he has. And, uh, you know, it's something quite spectacular uh, in terms of how he produces because he's producing stuff that he wants to make rather than to formula. Uh, what else have I got on, in this pile here? Skate One, Kurt Bagley. Uh, here we go, Carl Finlay. It's basically, it's a pile of electro, by the way. Carl Finlay. You know, Carl, uh, Skate Skate One is Kurt Bagley, an amazing producer who's been producing for a couple of decades. Again, really talented producer, Carl Finlay. I remember Carl Finlay playing stuff at Back to Basics in Leeds in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, and um, Billy Nasty. And and hearing Billy Nasty playing electro in the that old club. Yeah, Back to Basics and Brigitte. And just in, in what ninety five maybe, and mm-hmm. sort of guys like that. Very good. What else have I got here? Um, Underground Resistance. Uh, what's this one? Uh, Radioactive Man. Keith Tenniswood. Uh, you know, a really talented producer. Um, all the two lone two lone swordsman stuff is brilliant. I mean, I'm still. You know, we lost someone quite spectacular uh, when we lost Andrew Weverall. Um, yeah, uh, and, and on it goes. There's so much uh, great quality electronic music. Sync uh, 24, James Shinra, uh, Ro- uh, Chris Roman, two on four. Uh, you know, just the thing I like is 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 we haven't run out of impetus in terms of electronic music. Uh, there's still amazing music being being produced now. I think the challenge is the quality, the quantity. There's so much music being produced that it's actually quite hard to sift through it and find it. So I become a bit of a label fiend, and I generally buy probably records from about I don't know twenty labels, and I just I, I stick to them because I trust the like Chris Smith from um, from CPU. I trust his taste in music, and I trust his you know, the way he archives the label. Uh, and so I can buy from there. Because otherwise, you're, you're sort of, what you're doing is scanning through Juno and Boomcat and wherever it might be, trying to, trying to, trying to find new things. So I'm, I'm still passionate about music. I still buy music. Um, and it's just trying to find that spark, that originality. Who's doing something that's slightly different to the thing everyone else is doing? Amen. I know exactly, I, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean too much music not enough time as a friend of mine once said so it's been great to have you on paul before we wrap up it's a shameless self-promotion what's coming out anything in the pipeline you'd like to get our folks ears twitching for yeah so i've been fortunate enough to release some music on um exalt records um and the Exalt back catalogue is a thing to be proud of. You know, he has artists like Morphology, Ross Gabriel. What started out as originally doing 112 inch, which was Utopian Dystopias with them, then became um, two. So we did Utopian Dystopias part one. Guess what? We did a part two. And then um, Jamie that runs the label said, look, we're not done. We need to do a third one. So coming out at some stage, currently stuck in manufacturing, back to that point, is Utopian Dystopias Part 3 and it's um, it's a double 12 uh, be- it's beautiful spat vi- you know, spatter coloured vinyl some really lovely artwork and, and and some sort of a bit of a story in there as well in terms of the sort of the text that's uh, one of the handouts so I'm really proud of that and I've got 
remixes on that by um, Plant 43 and and um, Carl Finlow as well. It's an amazing piece of music. I'm very proud of it. But as I said, it should have been out in December, and we're still um, waiting for it to to pass muster from a manufacturing perspective. Uh, from my own perspective, I've got obviously I run Hierophant Records. So I've got Hierophant Dubs six and seven uh, currently. Um, I'm either waiting for remixes from various people to come back or they're in the process of being mastered. I'm not in a mad rush to get the vinyl out this year now because of, of the, the sort of post-Brexit um, meltdown that's happened with um, with production. And I'm also considering whether or not I switch to digital anyway because of this the carbon footprint. Uh, I'm giving that a lot of thought because I like records, I like buying them and owning them, but I like the environment more. And I think that, that vinyl increasingly is is isn't isn't where i want to be on the on the environmental spectrum um so that's that's it from records there's a, a bunch of remixes that I'm, i've done and I'm, I'm doing for people that are that are, that are sort of popping up here there and everywhere and that's great it's lovely to be asked and, and, and participate i think the other the other couple of main things i do i'm part of a collective called hybrid and we do um a bunch of online parties at the moment but obviously more more parties in the real as well and we've got people like kim cosmic arsonist recorder uh, andy jaggers era beauty um, drybot bmf myoptic people like that are in that crew and it's a really good collection of people that have been around long enough to be in it for the music uh and you know tuning out any sense of fame and fortune because that just ain't gonna work uh and and yeah we 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 do we do parties we've got more parties uh, over the over the sort of coming year coming year schedule which is going to be fun and then i suppose the other thing just to finish on is every saturday night saturdays 8 till 10 p.m on CrateDigs.com. i do two hours worth of uh, of music i play electronics with soul and soulful electronics and um it's great crate digs has gone from uh, a very small you know six djs set up to, to raise a couple of thousand pounds for the nhs uh, to what it is now, the 50 DJs, and it's 24/7 global, um, and it's you know it's a great community of people. I'm still always amazed that they haven't thrown me off because I'll play like Underground Resistance at nine o'clock on a Saturday night, and uh, but maybe maybe no one's listening and they haven't figured it. But yeah, that those would be my shameless bits of, of hype. There's a lot going on. You're a busy boy, even with current lockdown restrictions. You certainly kept busy with everything, which is uh, fantastic. Look, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And thanks very much for being on Time Lock. And good luck with all future endeavours. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me, Alistair. Thank you again to Paul for an amazing conversation. Please check out his back catalogue in all good record stores. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Time Lock. And if you have, please hit that like button, repost, share, or leave a comment. Don't forget to check out the latest releases from Gated on Bandcamp and all good record stores, and all previous episodes of Time Lock on SoundCloud. So until next time, 